You may have heard the story about a little boy who went to Sunday school one morning, and when he came back from Sunday school, his mother said, what did they teach you in Sunday school today? He said, oh, mom, they told us this amazing story about these bad soldiers in their camos, and they were coming up out of this sea called the Red Sea, and the Israelites had all these destroyers and submarines, and they mowed them all down. And she said, did they really tell you that? And she said, the little boy said to his mother, no, they didn't really tell me that. But if I told you what they really told me, there's no way you would believe it. <laughs> I hope you know what the real story is because you've been doing some reading in your Bible reading plan or else you've been watching Disney movies. But it's encouraging to me as we are in the last sermon on this soaking in scripture series because next week we'll start the first Sunday in Lent and we'll be looking at the prophet Micah but as we are in this last sermon sermon of the series it's really heartening to me to think that as we have this story a story that's often preached at Easter time that the words right before Beth read to us have these women going to this tomb where they fully expected what everyone would expect every single time someone has died in their lives. They would go to the grave where the dead person would be. They were going there to prepare and anoint the body, to to do burial preparations for the body, which they could not have done on the Sabbath when they weren't supposed to work. That's what they expected because that's what they had seen. That's what everybody was expecting. And when they met up with the glistening angels there, whiter than any crest strips could make your teeth, they were stunned, they were amazed, and they rushed back to tell the apostles. And there's this great description of what happened when these women tell the apostles that Jesus isn't there, that he's actually risen from the dead, The apostles did not listen to them, for their words seemed like nonsense to them. This has probably happened in other interactions between the sexes. But it always happens if you're taking the Bible seriously, because God does utterly astonishing things, things that we didn't expect And it's comforting in our moment. It's comforting knowing what we know of ourselves. It's comforting knowing the air that we breathe, that the Bible itself, about itself, admits that its main fact, when described to other people, sounds like nonsense. Breathe in the nonsense. They did not believe them because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Only Peter ran to the tomb to see for himself, and he walked away, shaking his head, pondering these things, wondering, what could this mean? There's no one in the tomb. It's important to recognize as you read the Bible. It's important to recognize as you do this soaking in scripture together, steeping yourselves in a personality that is depicted here in the scriptures, that for us, belief is going to be hard sometimes. 
if you're doing it right, there are going to be moments where you're going to find yourself wondering, is this really true? Could this possibly be true? This seems like nonsense. The same day, there were two men walking from Emmaus, and Jesus walks up beside them. They don't know. They are kept from recognizing him, we're told. A divine prohibition, perhaps. They're kept from recognizing him. And he says to them, Hey, fellas, what were you all talking about just now? These men, not being southerners, say rather unpolitely, impolitely, Where have you been, dude? Have you not noticed? Have you not been around and known what has happened? We thought this guy was Messiah. We thought he was coming to make Israel great again. He was handing out hats. But he died. So he must not have been Messiah because Messiahs don't die. That's the one rule of being a Messiah. God's anointed one has God's blessing. God's anointed one would never be cursed. God's anointed one would have executive-styled hair and brawny muscles and would destroy his enemies. He would kick out all the immigrants. Come on. But he died. And what's more, our women have astonished us by saying these foolish things like that they went to the tomb and no one was there, but they did meet some angels. Which is always a little alarming. These men were walking beside Jesus and they were crushed. They were talking to God in flesh, the risen Lord who was going to repair the earth, and they didn't realize it and they were crushed. They looked at him and they answered his questions with downcast faces. They were crushed. Just because they didn't realize. They had misinterpreted reality. They were not believing something that was right beside them. Belief will be hard. We live in a moment, as I've said before, a privileged moment. A high watermark in human history. Where we are the most enlightened people in the history of the world. And for the first time ever... The first time ever, Western civilization, we have a government that does not factor God into any equation. And an economic system that does not consider or factor God into any equation. A political system that does not factor God or consider Him into any equation. An education system that does not consider God or factor Him into any equation. We have lives that do not Consider God or factor him in to any equation. We are the first people in the history of the earth to do that. Because we're very smart. And we're very strong. And we use a whole lot of Prozac. The richest and most nervous people on the face of the earth. Because God is out. 
And so for the first time, believers are believing, knowing full well, I believe this, and there are other smart people, and there are other elegant people, and there are other rich people, and there are other smart people, sexy people, lovely people, who do not believe this at all. And you think, is this nonsense? Throughout human history, you would have had lots of cultural collaboration, corroboration. You would have had resonances. Other people would have believed what you thought. The church would have believed what you thought. The government would have believed what you thought. The rulers would have believed what you thought. The education system would have believed what you thought. All the people around you would have believed what you thought. It's a lot easier to believe something when that happens. And when nobody believes it, then you've got to have some familiarity with avenues that can help prop up your belief. And it's encouraging that the book itself will say, look, these guys were standing next to Jesus and they didn't recognize him. These women reported to some apostles that he was raised from the dead and they didn't believe it. They thought it was nonsense. That's kind of encouraging. But you see, it was their misinterpretation that fooled them, as it is our misinterpretation. These guys were crushed because they had not been able to foresee something that wound up happening. We also have a lot of misery in our lives because we misinterpret things. You realize this, that the primary way that you know stuff is through your own interpretations of it. Which is why, this is a prophecy I'm going to make today for somebody in this room. Some lucky cat. or Yeah, cat can be... Cats aren't only women, right? There are female and male cats, right? I try not to know anything about cats. Some lucky individual this morning will get to leave here today, and this phenomenon will occur to them. It will happen to them. It will be a misinterpretation issue, and it will ruin Super Bowl Sunday for them. So pay attention. Write this down. Here's what's going to happen. Somebody's going to go home, and they are going to forget the rapturous singing that we just experienced, the, the, the warmth wed to competency and the skillful playing of these, this music and our joining our voices together and losing ourselves. They're going to forget about that altogether. They won't even remember Matt Brown's name. They will forget how funny... The elder who has the last name Boozer was when he gave us a budget report, which was really rather creative. And he had grown men acting like they were running in front of you and were laughing. And, and you, but you also got the point, I think, and even children probably could understand it. It was really clever. You'll forget about that altogether. You will forget the, the, the great conversation we had with somebody and the, probably the most magnificent sermon you've ever heard in your life. Not one of those things will be in your mind, the meeting at the Lord's table, taking Christ into yourself. But you know what you will remember and you'll think about all day long? This won't be all of you, but six of you. You will remember a conversation you had during the meet and greet time. And you'll say, oh, gosh, I can't believe I said that. She's going to think, she's going to think that I was saying something bad about her. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Ah! And you're going to sit there, and all day long you're going to think about what an idiot you are. Should I call her? Should I call him? Should I, maybe I should text him and just clear it up. 
Maybe I should just make sure they understood what I really meant because I don't want them to misunderstand me. I think they got the wrong idea about me. And you will spend the rest of your afternoon thinking about someone who has not thought about you one time since you left this service. And your day will be ruined. And it won't be because of reality. It will be because of misinterpretation. It will be because you were so huge in your own mind that you forgot the world around you. And it was the most natural thing on earth for you to do. I do it all the time. I went to an ordination service of a good friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine. We'll call him Walter because that was his name. (laughs) And I went with another friend who we'll just as well, may as well call David because his parents did. (laughs) And when I was at Walter's ordination, participating in it, this is when we were both getting started in ministry. It was such an elegant service, beautiful words spoken over him, prayers offered over him, laying on of hands, powerful. I even participated in the laying on of hands, and the whole time I felt sick. The whole service, I felt sick to my stomach. As they kept talking about the calling of being a pastor, about God's conscription into this privileged service, this aspiration of what a pastor should be, and what he should do, and what his heart should be like, and what God's intention was in the universe. And as they said all these lofty things that had tears in people's eyes and people ready to go into battle, I was feeling nauseous and sick. I described this to David on my way home from Atlanta with him. You know, the whole service, I just kept thinking, I'm such a fraud. The people at Rock Creek who have just hired me are going to find out that I must have paid somebody off to get this job. They're going to find out that I I can barely even lead my own legs step at a time. I shouldn't be leading other human beings in anything. I feel like such a fraudulent person. There's nothing real in my heart in these things about God. The things they're saying that a pastor should be, I'm not any of them. I just feel sick. And David, being a man who's always sort of beating around the bush, said, huh, that's funny. The whole time we were there, I was thinking about Walter and how awesome this was for him. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah. You mean that wasn't a service for me? That wasn't a service for one guy who was out in the audience that they didn't even address in one single moment? That was about him? About God setting him apart? (sighs) Yeah, you see, because I just misinterpreted everything. I got stuck in the gloomy little dungeon of myself. And I was hearing everything with my disease ears. And I was seeing everything through my blue blocker lenses that were blocking out all reality. And it's only seeing, you know, blue blockers, if you ever used to watch TV in the 90s? I was only seeing everything as it pertained to me as if everything were about me. Of course, that is a ruinous way to live, and that's the way most people live. That's the way you have to live, in fact, if God doesn't exist. That's the way people live right now. That's why you think that every juice and every urge and every desire and every craving and every longing and every machination of your heart and mind must be obeyed, listened to, coddled, and followed. Because you are the meaning giver of your life. But if Jesus got up from the dead, if it's not nonsense then God has stepped into the world and must be listened to. Then this Messiah, he says to them, how slow of heart you are 
to believe, you foolish people. McFly! Wake up, are you kidding me? And he explains to them from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms how all of it was pointing to him. It's a story about him. They were designed to have learned to expect him, but they weren't expecting him. They had been misinterpreting. They only had ears to hear one kind of thing. That one day there would come this king, an anointed one. This prophet who spoke for God. This priest who stood in the place of God for his people and brought the people back to God. He would have shoulders broad enough to meet the aspirations and realizations of all the scriptures. They had no room to ever imagine him being someone who suffered physically. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this one looked cursed. God's servant has shiny teeth and brawny arms and is smart and people follow him and they fall down at his feet. They don't spit in his face. He's unignorable, they thought, as they walked beside him and did not recognize him. Belief is going to be very hard. And until Jesus himself explained this to them and then gave them bread, broke it, took it, gave it to them. Their eyes weren't opened. But when he gave it, their eyes opened and they realized that they had had the kind of heartburn we all want. Not the kind that Nexium fixes. The kind of heartburn that means my heart is reverberating with the things of God. My heart is alighted and inflamed with hunger and desire and passion for this God who has reached down from the heavens into our moments, has manipulated our molecules, has entered into our life. They didn't realize about Jesus, and so they were crushed. If you don't realize that there's reality outside of you and start aligning your life to it, you will be crushed most of the time. You'll be misinterpreting things most of the time. You'll be believing a steady diet, ingesting a steady diet of lies most of the time. And see, what's interesting is all these apostles, what we have in the New Testament, is we have this fact, this fact of the resurrection of Jesus that stands as the the hinge point upon which we believe that the Scriptures are true. Nobody in the Old Testament. You'll hear guys say this. You'll say, Jesus fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. And he did. But not the way you think about it. Nobody in the first century. Nobody in the first century. And by nobody, I mean not one body. In the first century, expected that there was going to come a man who was fully God and fully man and that he was going to be the Messiah and that everybody was going to hate him and they were going to crucify him nakedly in shame and he was going to be crying out, why have you forsaken me, God? Not one person, when they saw this, thought, Scripture, 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 this is the fulfillment of Scripture. Oh my gosh, it's happening! 
Nobody thought it. Nobody thought it. That's why they were downcast after. That's why they hid after he was dead. That's why they cowered in a room for fear of the Jews after his death. But when they saw the resurrected Christ, these cowards became courageous. These huddled up people became open-hearted and unafraid. These people who thought it was nonsense started saying to believe anything else is nonsense. And they started going back and rethinking the entire Old Testament. (gasps) Oh, oh, oh my gosh! They started remembering things he said, and all of a sudden, like they had just seen the sixth sense. And they realized that the ending, they went back and watched it again, and they re-saw the whole movie. And that's what happened to them. Jesus said, here's how you interpret the Bible. It isn't ultimately about your life. Just like I went into Walter's ordination and I thought, oh, yeah, this is about me because I think every conversation is instinctively, I think every conversation is somehow going to be about me unless I snap myself out of it and say, wait a second, what? And see, if you read the Bible, the Bible will crush you. If you read it thinking the Bible is only about you, that the Bible is addressed specifically to you. You won't know what to do with it except to feel crushed by it, to feel your shoulders buckling under it. Because the first thing you have to realize is that you've got to, there's a reality outside of you that one of the things the Bible wants to tell you is that you are in a story that you didn't suspect. You're being welcomed in. You're being invited to participate in a story that is not the story of the world right now. You're not getting any reinforcement. But the Bible wants to say, here's what faith is. Walking into this story that says, there is a king who has propped himself up against the ruin of the world, and you should listen to what he says. Because everyone who does gets to live forever. Everyone who does gets free of their guilt. Everyone who does gets a free key to unlock the gloomy dungeon of themselves so they can walk right out of it, and they don't have to walk around being tyrannized every second of every day thinking about their own stinky, smelly, septic tank self all the time. They get catapulted out. They get to know that they are loved, and they get to know that they are accepted, and they get to know that they are participating on the winning team of a God who has entered into history and is reversing everything. But nothing in your world is telling you that. But if you're going to read the Bible, you're going to have to realize it's ultimately about this Savior who has said, the prophets are about me, Moses is about me, the Psalms are about me. This whole book is meant to introduce you to me. You've got to realize me. Think of the moments when you're most crushed. Isn't it because you've misinterpreted something? You can be crushed by the Bible. You read... The Bible, if you think the Bible is all addressed to you and you identify with every single character, you hear Abraham being told to leave his family and go, and you think that's a message for you, and then you hear Paul saying, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Work with your hands and earn the respect of outsiders. And then you like the men in raising Arizona. So which is it, young fellow? You wanting that I should stand or wanting that I should drop? Do you want me to be domesticated or itinerant? Am I to be a city dweller or am I going to be a nomad? If everything in the Bible, if every story in the Bible is some kind of ethical command to you, you're going to be confused a lot. But if the Bible is ultimately meant to say, look, there's this reality that you're not thinking of. You're envisioning a future where Christ isn't. You're envisioning a past that Christ hasn't done anything about. 
You're envisioning a present that Christ isn't actively walking beside you in, and he's walking beside you, and you just don't see him. You need your eyes open. And this scripture is an eye-opening book. You need your ears declogged. The scripture is a water blaster to get the clogs out. It's a book that tells you about the life of another that is sweeping you up into it. If you can start to believe that, you can start to find some freedom in your moments. When Christ was gone from these forlorn travelers to Emmaus, they were crushed. When he was present, their hearts burned with life. When he started opening the scriptures to them, they started finding pulsations. They started finding hope welling up. They started finding something that was riveting to them. And that's something you can ask for when you come to the scriptures. Our tendency, I promise you, is to misinterpret and to rehearse the wrong parts of the play. I was talking to a pastor the other day, a tall pastor, much taller than I am, much slenderer than I am, much more bearded than I am. Can't remember his name. And he was confiding something to me, and I said, Hey, fella, it seems to me that you're rehearsing the wrong parts of the play. He was describing a situation, and I was looking at, because I wasn't him, it's easier, it's always easier to see stuff when you're not in it. He was rehearsing this whole thing, and he was feeling some guilt and some meh, wonkiness, feeling insecure about his part in it, and I was looking at the whole thing and how it had turned out. So it didn't occur to me there's anything other than gratitude to be had, but for him, he felt bad. I said, you're rehearsing the wrong parts of the play. You see, this happens to us all the time. How many things happen good in your life and afterwards... You're stuck thinking about one part of it that that didn't have anything to do with the whole of it. But you're just stuck. And the Bible wants to say, here's the play. God made things magnificent. People wanted to take things into their own hands and they blew the joint to bits. And they developed severe hives and allergies to God. And so God immunized them and set about the work of making it so they could come back. And all the means failed until one day, in the most unlikely way, he stepped into the world dressed like nobody was thinking he'd be dressed. And he died like nobody thought he would die. But then he got up as no one had ever expected anyone to get up. And when people saw that, they started rethinking the whole story. Because that means if what he said so far has all happened What he's saying is going to happen is going to happen. So we might art to listen to him. Your dejection or your elation is going to depend in large part on how much you realize Jesus' work in the world and in your life. And a lot of that's going to depend on how much you hang out in these scriptures and with other people who believe with you. When you find yourself saying, am I crazy to stay married? Everybody else is getting divorced. Am I crazy to give away money? 
I just gave money into the plate. I've got bills to pay on Tuesday. Who do I see to about get that money back? Am I crazy to take other kids into our home to show kindness to somebody who's going to hate me back, to stick with a job that's hard? Am I nuts to do this in obedience to some Savior that I cannot see? To submit my sexual desires to this book? Am I nuts? Well, you're not submitting them to a book. You're submitting them to a king that the book is about. Who has died in your place and is now living in it. I close with this. We're going to take communion. You know the story, but I think that what's got to happen as you start to rehearse the right parts of the play and belief starts to well up in you, you'll get smaller, he'll get bigger. You know the story, Aslan, said Lucy, Aslan. At last, as she lays eyes on him, and the great beast rolls over on his side, and Lucy falls, half-sitting in between his giant paws, and he touches her nose with his tongue, and his warm breath breathes all around her. And she gazes up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, Aslan says to her. And Lucy says, Aslan, You're bigger. And Aslan answers, no, little one. That is because you are older, little one, not because I'm bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The reason we're soaking in Scripture is because our world shrinks on us. When you think back, to that playground you played on that was huge and you used to jump off the monkey bars and you'd go back and say, oh, those things were only three feet off the ground. Your world shrinks on you. Your world gets as small as your worries. But our Savior wants to catapult you out of yourself and say, look how big He is. Look how big His intentions are for the whole world. It can encompass all your fear and all your doubt and all your joy and all your relationships and all your work and all of everything we can see and all that we cannot see. And every year you believe in Him, He's going to get bigger and bigger.